we are going to dive right in. We are continuing along in our sermon series through the book of Genesis. We are in Genesis chapter 3 this week. We have the text up on the screen, or it's in your worship folder as well. Uh, before I pray and read the text, I also just I do want to let you know that if you have questions about the text, if you have questions about Christianity, something that we like to do is like honor your questions. So we have space directly after the sermon, five to seven minutes, text those questions in, and I will answer them. They're uh, anonymous. So I won't read your name or anything like that, but we'll spend some time after the sermon addressing those. So Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let me go ahead and, and pray for our time this morning. Father in heaven, we come to your scriptures, we come to this text, and God, we ask that you would illuminate the word for us, that you would help us to understand what it is that you have, what it is that you are trying to teach us this morning through the word. God, would the, the preaching of the word, as we, as we hear it, God, explained and expounded, would it be oxygen to our lungs? Would it break chains? Would it soften our hearts, God? We know that your, your word, as it goes out, it accomplishes the work that you intend for it to accomplish. So, Lord, help us to approach the, the text this morning with, with reverence, with awe, Help us to come to the word out of a great need. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to our text, Genesis 3, the fall. We all know what happens. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they fall into sin. The serpent tempts the woman and the man, he does nothing. We're familiar with this story. It's in it's in the, the storybook Bibles that we read to our kids. Our, our kids have colored through the worksheets. It is a, a scene that has been depicted by artists and painters throughout the centuries. We're, we're familiar with what goes on. We're familiar here with this, this text. And although I'm not entirely sure why there's this consensus that, that the woman ate of an apple, it doesn't say that in the text, or in some storybook Bibles or some worksheets that your children have colored, it just looks like that 
it is way too casual of a conversation that happening between the serpent and Eve. It's like the, the serpent is just there in the tree, you know, with got a smirk on his face, kind of hanging out. And it's like the conversation they're having just looks way too casual. It's like they're, they're talking about the newest iPhone or something like that. And, and one of them is saying, you know, new number, who dis? It just is like way, way too casual portrayed what is, what is happening in there. And I will, okay, now step off from, you know, that soapbox, but we come to our text, and broadly speaking, we know what happens. And this morning, I want for us, as, to, as, we, as we read here, I want us to just sort of pump the brakes a little bit. I, I want us to sort of just slow down and kind of wade into the text. And now, much of what I learned in seminary, it was simply just how to read the Bible, it was how to read the Bible. It was how to interpret and read the Bible. And I remember having this conversation with a friend of mine. Right as I graduated, he asked me, Heath, how was seminary? And I was like, good. He asked, you, he asked me, Heath, you know, what did you learn? And I was like, yeah, I learned how to read the Bible. Like, I learned how to read and interpret the Bible. And he didn't, like, say this audibly, but it was sort of just like, really? You spent three years, like, reading the Bible? And, you know, from that point on, I decided to tell people something more spiritual, like I learned how to levitate or to play Quidditch. But in seminary, we spent so much time reading and interpreting the Bible. And as we come to narratives in the Scriptures, we come to and we see all of the narratives and and the stories that are throughout the Old Testament. We see the narratives and Acts and the Gospel accounts we, we need to read this text as a narrative. And I remember learning that if you come to a narrative and the author is slowing down, he's slowing down the pace, he's going into painstaking detail, if the author was doing that, then that was our cue to also slow down. That was our cue that the author is trying to get our attention He's trying to point us to something really important, so the pace, it slows it down. And here's what's happening. Moses, under the, the superintending of the Lord, he's giving us this painstaking dialogue between woman and the serpent. He's giving us this painstaking dialogue of, of, of what is happening, and it is showing us the inner workings. It is showing us the underbelly of the serpent and the mechanics of the human heart. That's what this text is showing us, the underbelly of the serpent and the mechanics of the human heart. It's the story of, of man and woman falling into sin. That story is our story, too. It's this story about rebellion, about cosmic treason, about great betrayal. So as we pump our brakes and as we slow down and as we wade into this text, we'll see that, that this text, it, it talks about the human condition. It talks about the human condition. And it talks about the human condition and our quest and our desire to be satisfied. It talks about our our quest for satisfaction, and it it slows down, and it shows us that this desire that we see from from our first parents is also our our desire, too, the desire to be satisfied. And the text, it shows us clearly that sin doesn't satisfy. Sin does not satisfy us. Sin does not leave us fulfilled in the way that we need. It's like drinking salt water. It it leaves us thirstier. It leaves us unquenched. It leaves us malnourished. 
So sin, it doesn't satisfy us, but the gospel, the gospel does. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it satisfies our hearts in a way that it's what we actually need, whether we know it or not. That the gospel, it, it satisfies us. So our text, it's about temptation and sin. It's about Jesus and his grace. And it shows us that this human condition that we relate with in the text, that we relate with our first parents, it shows us our, our quest for satisfaction. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about temptation. We're going to talk about sin. And we're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to keep it really simple and unoriginal. So temptation, sin, and Jesus in that order. So temptation. What does our text tell us about temptation? What is temptation? How does it work? And you know what? Temptation, it tells us, it shows us that we long to be satisfied. That's what temptation shows us. It shows us that we long to be satisfied. When we are being tempted to sin, what is actually going on is that you are being tempted to find satisfaction in sin. That's what's, that's what's going on, to find satisfaction in something prohibited, to find satisfaction in something off-limits, to find satisfaction in something that makes things fall apart. That's what's going on when we're being tempted to sin. And now, this longing that we have for satisfaction, it's not bad. The desire to be satisfied, it is how we were designed. We were designed to find satisfaction in what we do, in, in our work, to find satisfaction in our relationships, in our marriage covenant, to find satisfaction with the way that we interact with God's creation, the way that we interact with, with the world in which we inhabit, to find beauty in the sunrise, to, to marvel at the Rembrandt exhibit currently at the Columbus Museum of Art. It is why we find satisfaction when we click into place that last piece of the jigsaw puzzle or, or hitting all green lights on our commute to work. We, we long for satisfaction. It is part of our DNA. So, we're, so the question of temptation the question of temptation is really a question of, of where. Where are we going to look to for satisfaction? Where are we going to look to? Will we look to sin? Or will we look to Jesus and his grace? And now our passage in verse 1, it begins with this sudden and somewhat unexplained introduction to the serpent. And of course we know that the serpent, it's not any ordinary snake. For one, it's talking, right? And ordinarily speaking, snakes don't talk. Can we affirm that? You can say yes, it's okay. Yes. Ordinarily speaking, snake, snakes, they don't talk. We can agree on that. And to kind of understand what is happening here, uh, a commentator uh, by the name of, of Dalich, he says this. He says that even though Genesis never calls the serpent Satan, it is unmistakable that the serpent is not acting as a mere serpent, but as the mouthpiece of a dark power. An animal is intended, but an animal is not speaking of its own accord, but is made the instrument of itself by the evil principle. That is to say, a competent reader from the original audience would have been able to infer that the serpent is the mouthpiece of a dark power. So it's not an ordinary snake. It's not an ordinary 
serpent. Serpents, snakes, they, they don't talk. And the serpent, as we read and as we clearly see that it's, it's tempting the woman, that the woman is getting tempted, that she is being lured away from God, and man, her husband, just stands there. That the, the, the serpent is tempting the woman, and then man, he just, he just stands there. And as the serpent is tempting the woman, he is filling her head with doubts. He is twisting Scripture. And it's here that we really see the serpent's underbelly. We see his, his playbook, his, his schemes. We see how he's going about his work of temptation. That he, and what he's doing is he's going right after the Word of God. He's going right after the Word of God. And he's going right after God's character. That's what he's doing here. In verse 1, we see that, that uh, it, the serpent says to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The serpent, he's misquoting God. Did God actually say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The Lord didn't say that, did he? Didn't, he didn't say that. In, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, we have it up here on the screen. This is what the Lord says to man. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the serpent, he tw- is twisting God's word. He is misquoting scripture. And in verse, verses 4 through 5, we see that that what else he is doing. We see other, other part of his scheme involves just outright lie. That, 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 serpent, that the serpent, that, that Satan is, is the father of lies. And we see this, this direct contradiction of what the serpent tells the woman. He says, you will not surely die. That's what he says in verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. That's a direct contradiction. That's, that's a lie. The serpent he lies. He misquotes Scripture. He twists it. But we also see that he goes after God's character. He goes after God's character. If you, if you look at the text, we see that, that the serpent doesn't address God by his proper name, the Lord God. When he addresses or talks about God, he instead just says God. He doesn't say Lord God. But if you see throughout the creation account, we're told about the Lord God. His, his, his proper name. So you see that the serpent, he is, he's deliberately undermining God's work. He is out for blood. He seeks to interfere with the peace and the harmony of God's creation. And this is what's, what's going on. This is what the temptation does. It, it, it tells us to, to forget what God did in Genesis 1 and 2. Forget the work of creation, forget the ways in which he is, God has provided for you to be satisfied. You, you shouldn't trust God. So by twisting things, by, by lying about the word of God, this is what the enemy is seeking to do. Forget what God did in Genesis 1 and 2. Forget the ways that he has graciously provided to your heart's desire. To forget all of that. It's interesting. I, I found this quote by this uh, biblical scholar, Walter Moberly. He says that it is noteworthy that the serpent never tells the woman to transgress God's prohibition. He simply calls into question both God's truthfulness 
and God's trustworthiness. That's what the serpent does. He calls into question both God's truthfulness and God's trustworthiness. And he leaves the woman to draw her own conclusions. He leaves the woman to draw her own conclusions, and the man just stands right there and watches. So what is happening when we are being tempted into sin, when we are being tempted to sin, We are being told to question God's truthfulness. We are being told to question God's trustworthiness. We are told things like, Heath, forget the ways in which God has provided for you. Heath, forget those ways. Forget how you've seen God work in your life. Heath, sin, it can satisfy you in a way that God cannot. Do you see how temptation works? This is what it says to us, that that sin can satisfy us in a way that God cannot. This is the heart of temptation. This temptation, it can be overwhelming. We know what that's like. We know what it is like for temptation to feel overwhelming, for temptation to be to be loud and in your face. It's like someone speaking to you a foot away via a megaphone. We, we know how overwhelming it can be. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Are we supposed to just give in and allow temptation to bring us down? What are we supposed to do? Well, if this text shows us that as human beings we are on this quest for satisfaction, then we flee temptation by finding satisfaction in Jesus. By, by finding satisfaction in his gospel. If, if, if sin beckons us via temptation, if it calls out to us with a megaphone, if it seeks to, to lure us into its path, if it seeks to lure us into sin, we need to find satisfaction in Jesus. We need to, to, to flee. We need to put on our running shoes and, and get out of there. And when we are being tempted... When we are being lured, we, we've got to be aware of the situation. We've got to be cognizant and aware that temptation isn't neutral like Switzerland. It has, it has an agenda. Temptation, it has an agenda. It's not neutral. It's, its agenda is to lead us away from God and into sin. That's what the agenda is, to lead us away from God and into sin. Now, I, talking about temptation, I, I, a caveat, I want to be very clear. I want to be very clear that if you are being tempted, that if temptation is loud, that if it is overwhelming, that it is not too late for you. It is not too late to flee. If you are being tempted, it is not too late. Meaning, I, I want to make very clear that temptation, that because you are experiencing temptation, it does not mean that you are in sin. The temptation is not sin. But to be tempted doesn't mean that you've sinned. It means that it could lead to sin, but it also could not. So when temptation, when it talks to you, when it beckons you, pray. I have that. We can put that up on the screen. So when temptation talks to you, when it beckons to you, pray. You like the all caps? I was hyped up on, hyped up on coffee this morning, so all caps. Pray. When temptation talks to you, pray. Matthew 26, 41. This is what Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane to his disciples. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. For the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh 
is weak. Another one of my favorite verses is 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. And you, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So pray, Lord, help me. Show me how to get out of here. Show me a clear route of escape. Would you help me in this moment right now? So pray. But also, when we find that temptation's words are persuasive, we need to combat them with a more powerful and more persuasive word. Psalm 119, 111. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me, let me not wander from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So prayer, scripture, nothing, no, like, nothing out of the ordinary, right? These are, these are things that we would expect to see, resources that God has ordinarily given us to fight temptation. So prayer, the word, and then when we see temptation showing us how we can fulfill cravings, when we see temptation just, just, just dropping the, the carrot in front of us and showing us how to fulfill cravings, we, we got to remember the Lord's table. We got to remember the sacrament of the Lord's table, the sweetness of dipping the bread into the wine. We got to recall that the Lord's Supper, it shows us this picture of the gospel that we actually can eat and drink, that it fills us with good news. It's through these ordinary means of, of prayer, of the word and the table, that God, that he gives us his grace and his means, his means of grace, they're, they're holistic. They appeal to our senses. They, it's what we can, we can see the gospel. We can see the text of, this, of the scriptures. We can hear the gospel preached. We can, we can touch it with our hands. We can taste and see literally that the Lord is good. This is how God equips us to fight temptation. This is how he equips his church to find satisfaction in Jesus. So when we experience temptation, we are being pulled in a direction. We are being pulled in a direction to find satisfaction in sin. That's what's going on when we experience temptation. And yet, we also see in our text that man and woman ignore God's prohibition. Man and woman ignore God's prohibition, and in their quest to find satisfaction, they are lured. The word of God, it is twisted. They are lied to by the serpent, and yet another factor clearly at play in our text is their desire to be like God. Their desire to be made wise. Their desire to be made wise knowing good and evil. And they believed that by eating from the tree, that by eating of the tree, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would be able to achieve and find the satisfaction that they were looking for. That by eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that they would be able to achieve and find the satisfaction that they were looking for. But the kicker, that backfires, doesn't it? 
it, it, it backfires. It backfires dramatically. It backfires on a cosmic scale. C.S. Lewis says this. He says that a human creature revolting against its creator is like the scent of a flower trying to destroy the flower. It is revolting against the very source of its power. Do you know how, how beautiful C.S. Lewis is with words? I'm going to say that again. A human creature revolting against its creator is like the scent of a flower trying to destroy the flower. It is revolting against the very source of its power. Do we see how illogical sin is? How, how bizarre sin is? How much it just doesn't make sense? So eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it, it backfires. And there are consequences. Consequences that we'll see in more vivid detail in the upcoming weeks throughout the book of Genesis. But, but we see here that man's relationship with God is severed. It is cut off. That peace and wholeness that once characterized creation is now in disarray, is now in chaos, that, that man's relationship with one another, it is, it is splintered. And now our relationships are, are a place and vehicle of, of grief and strife and brokenness. And this story that we see here, it's, it's our story too. It's at play in our lives today. It's at play in the world in which we live here in central Ohio. I mean, look at how all of this just backfires. Look at how all of this just doesn't satisfy. Verses 6 and 7, it says this, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was there with her. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Sin, it's, it's, it's rebellion. It is cosmic treason. It is evil. And when you and I sin, we discover something. When you and I sin, we discover something. We discover that, you know, we aren't as good and innocent as we, we thought we were. That we aren't as good and innocent as we thought we were. That sin, it is, it is false advertising. Nothing against those in marketing or advertising, Kelly. I'm not saying that it's evil. But sin, it is, it is false advertising. That it doesn't give you what is advertised. That it is an outright lie. That it, it's a lie. It, it lies to you. It doesn't give you what you thought it would. And this is why, for so many of us, some of us all of the time and all of us some of the time, that our, our conscience is so ridden with guilt. This is why we feel ashamed when we sin. This is what sin does, is that it, it produces death, it produces misery, it produces guilt and shame in our lives, that when we when we sin, that we experience this guilt. When we sin, we experience this, this shame. So what do we do? What, what do we do? What does the text say that our first parents did? What, what do you do? Well, we seek to cover it up. We seek to 
hide. This is what man and woman did after they sinned, is that they covered their nakedness. They felt ashamed at what they had done. Caused Sin caused anguish. It caused grief. Produced death. It was far, far from satisfying. So if we're honest, this, this isn't a picture of the satisfaction that we thought it would be. This isn't a picture here in Genesis 3 of the satisfaction that we thought it would be. This doesn't satisfy, sin doesn't satisfy us in a way that we actually need, or in a way that could possibly be good for us. It's, it's false advertising, and yet our hearts, we, we buy into its campaign time and time again. We feel guilt. We feel shame. Now, guilt and shame, they're, they're not the same. They're, they're different. They're cousins, if you will, and they're, they're powerful. They can hold you captive. They can weigh you down. They cause you to, to fig leaf and to, to run and hide. I mean, have you ever sinned before and then you've needed to go to the other side of your house because you felt just so much shame and guilt? That you have like literally felt like you need to remove yourself from the situation and go to the other side of the house to hide? Have you ever felt that type of shame? Have you ever felt that type of guilt? I have. I, I know what that's like. I know what it is like to experience this guilt, this guilt that tells me that I've done something wrong, that I've violated God's law, and that I've just blown, that I've just blown it and fallen short of that norm. And the shame, it, it makes me feel unacceptable. You, you thought you knew the sort of person that you were, but it turns out you're not. You, you thought that you were the sort of person who would never do this, who would never do that, and yet you did it. I did it. We did it. So what now? What now? In your struggle with sin, in your quest to be satisfied, you didn't think that you were the kind of person, but it, it turns out, surprise, you are. You are a sinner. Struggle with sin. You sometimes stumble. So what do we do now? What do we do now? Christian, what do you do when you feel ashamed for what you have just done? When you carry around guilt like it's a backpack that you just have on your shoulders? What do you do? What are we to do? And you know, God knows that we can't lift ourselves out of guilt. God knows that we can't lift ourselves up by our bootstraps out of our guilt. God knows that we're not sufficient enough to cover our shame. So what does he do? He provides. He provides for us. He sees you laden with guilt. He sees you covered in your sin and shame. He knows of your stumbling life. He knows that you are filled with grief as you continue to do what you don't want to do anymore. So God provides for you. He comes to us. He provides for you. He comes to you. And He comes to you not at your expense, not at my expense, but by his own expense. That he comes to us 
and it costs him everything. See what kind of love the Father has. We should be called children of God. So he comes to us, not at your expense or my expense, but at his expense, and it costs him everything. Because when he comes, he doesn't ask us, you know, what we are doing to better ourselves. He doesn't come to us and ask us, what is your plan to turn your life around? He doesn't come asking those questions, but he comes and he doesn't ask us those questions. And do you know why he doesn't ask us those questions? Do you know why he doesn't come to us and ask us, hey, what's your plan to turn your life around? Hey, what's your plan to pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Do you know why he doesn't ask those questions? It's because God is going to stand under his own judgment. That God is going to stand under his own wrath for sin. It's because God was tried falsely as a criminal. It's because God would be stripped, mocked, and humiliated. It's because God would be publicly and openly shamed on the cross. It's because God himself bears our guilt. He bears our shame. And he's the only one that can call us out of that that he's the only one who can call us out of our guilt and shame because he has dealt with it. It has been nailed to the tree. He's the only one that can call us out of that guilt because of our sin and the shame that we feel when we sin because he's dealt with it. It's been nailed to the tree. So for the Christian, for the Christian, Our sin, it doesn't define you. Our sin, it no longer defines you. You are no longer condemned. The shame that you feel from your sin has been dealt with. It's the gospel that allows us to go from being guilty of our sin to being made righteous. It's the gospel that allows us from going being ashamed of our sin to being accepted. It is this this status. It is this identity. It is this, this alien status that is foreign to us, that has been given to us in Christ. So that no longer defines who we are. It's this, this gifted status. Our identity has changed because of the good news of the gospel. And you know, if you think about Christianity, if you interrogate it, if you ask questions about it, you know, what other God would do this? What other God would do this? What other religion presents to us a God who bears our shame? What other religion or worldview just sees how racked we are with our guilt and and removes it from us? What other type of worldview provides for us the way that Jesus does, the way that God does for us in Christ. No other way, no other religion, no other worldview do we see a God who bears our shame, who bears our guilt, who comes to us and gets dirty. So friends, do we see the type of love that has been lavished upon us? The type of love that says that I have removed your guilt, I have, I have removed your shame. 
Do we see the way in which this type of love and the way in which the gospel satisfies us? Do we see the way this, this, this kind of love is actually truly what we, what we really need? Do we see that this is, this is our Jesus who loves us dearly? And you now, and now, so the way forward for us, the way forward for us is, is that so much so much of the Christian life, so much of the Christian life of what it looks like to follow Jesus, so much of that is, is for us to become aware of what is already true about us in Christ. Let me say that again. So much of the Christian life is, is for us to become cognizant of the identity that has been given to us. And not only cognizant of it, but to allow it to, to shape us. Allow it to shape how we view ourselves. Allow that identity to shape how we view the world. So much of the Christian life is, is us realizing what is already true of us in Christ. And that's why, that's why, that's why sin it has no place in our lives. That's why sin has no place in our lives. That's why sin, it doesn't even make sense. It's like a child who is adopted trying to act again like it's, it's an orphan. We don't, we don't do that. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense for us to do that with this status that we have been given in Christ. So sin, it, just, it doesn't have a place in our lives and therefore, this is why confession is so important. This is why repentance is so important for us. This is why we, we regularly confess and repent as we would take the gar- taking the garbage out of our house. That we would, we would confess and repent as regularly as we are taking the garbage out of our house. This confession and repentance, it's, it is, it is report, important. And it's this love that has been lavished on us that prompts our confession. It prompts us to confess a little bit more quickly and to confess a little bit more boldly. We, we confess out of this assurance that our guilt has been dealt with. We confess out of this place that our shame has been covered. It's the love of Christ, the love of Christ that catches your attention, even out of the corner of your eye, this love, it catches your attention and it, it stops you in your tracks. So you turn from your sin. You repent of your sin. You turn away from your sin. And this love, it catches you out of the corner of your eye, so you turn towards it. This is the, lo- the love that has been lavished upon us. This is the love that we see displayed in the gospel of Christ. This love that calls us back, this love that really, truly, and actually satisfies. Let's pray.